the, the economics of philanthropy, you know, you, you can't discount and say the, the people that we're serving don't count. But if you want the engine to run and you want to be able to deliver programs and you know, feed people, clothe people, end poverty, improve the environment, provide health care, the organizations across the globe can't do that without the strength of philanthropy behind them. It's just not possible. So to, to discount the donor and not view them as a primary customer uh, in that equation, I think is a really big mistake. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Olson. He's the Senior Vice President and Partner at Newport One, but he's also a published author and the host of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Andrew is a wealth of knowledge, and we dive into a pretty hot topic where we address the fact that only 50% of Americans even trust NGOs to do what is right at this point, and how this is driving donors to opt out of the generosity ecosystem. We talk about this and many of the other challenges facing fundraising leaders today as they push through the rest of 2020 and into 2021. It's an action-packed, insightful conversation, so let's dive in. Andrew, you sparked quite the debate on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. What happened? Yeah, um... Honestly, I had no idea it was going to create the kind of uh, interest and friction that it did. So uh, to, to give everybody a sort of a sketch of, of what went on, uh, right as the COVID-19 issue became significant, I decided uh, to, to make some donations to different charities that, that I've worked with in the past or, or that um, you know, I know are doing good work, uh, particularly in and around the causes of, of hunger and homelessness, right? with the thinking that at a time like this, those places are going to be overrun with, with additional needs. So now's the time to be supporting them. And I didn't initially do it as a, a thought experiment, but um, you know, 30 days after I sent those gifts, uh, I hadn't heard from any of the organizations. Uh, and, and then I realized that I, I had received thank you letters from two, you know? So, um, so I took to LinkedIn and, and I just wrote a, a pretty, what I thought was a pretty simple post um, saying, hey, I did this thing. Um, we sent gifts to, to 10 different organizations. And so far, I've only heard from two um, and heard, you know, zip from everybody else. And then I, I think I put like, I don't know, five or seven, um, you know, tips for nonprofit organizations of, you know, here are some things to think about in your stewardship approach. If you, you know, if you're currently raising money, which I suspect most organizations are, uh, some of the things that you ought to be thinking and doing differently to make sure that you're stewarding those donor relationships well. You know, and this is, this is built off of, um, you know, 20 years of, of experience. You know, I, I've been uh, in this sector as a frontline fundraiser at a children's hospital and, and as a consultant for a long time. I've worked with over a thousand different organizations. So I feel like I've, I've seen a good breadth and, and depth of the sector, right? Um, one of the things that I said was, if you're too busy to properly thank donors who are stepping up at this time when people are losing their jobs, 
and when people are you know being furloughed and laid off, if it's too hard for you to say thank you, um, you might want to rethink whether or not you should be f- fundraising at all at this point. Um, and and that um, I think sparked a lot of the the frustration. It was really interesting. I think that that post has been. Um, viewed something like 16,000 times now. And, and there's a bunch of, of commentary on it. And a lot of people came out and said, yes, this is our experience. And it's unfortunate because it's our experience, even when there's not a time of crisis. Um, you know, and I suspect in a, in a crisis situation, there's a little bit more grace for things like this when, you know, people aren't able to be in their office. So maybe they're not processing mail on a timely basis, things like that. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, from from the cross section of responses that we got was there are a lot of people who say yes the the charities that we support um, just as a matter of fact aren't set up to really adequately show donors that they care about them as human beings rather than just ATM machines uh, and then there was an interesting group of of respondents who came out of the woodwork and and essentially said how dare you. Uh, suggest that we need to do things like this. One one person um, was so bold as to say something like, I can't believe that you're putting your own um, stewardship perspective and agenda on organizations like this. It's hard enough for us to do our mission. How dare you ask us to, um, to beg donors and, and get on our knees to plead with them for support uh, when, when we, sh- you know, they should be giving and, and we should just be able to do our mission without having to, to uh, respond like that to donors, which I think is a fascinating point of view. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's both concerning and fascinating, honestly, because I, I think, you know, it, it, it paints the picture and a lot of donors and, and particularly high net worth donors have, have talked about this, but it paints the picture that many nonprofits are disconnected from donors relationally. And, and because they rely on transactional fundraising for many of, of their organization's operating budgets, um, there's just not the same kind of care and attention put on the donor relationship uh, that, that we all know is what's necessary to create great relationships and to sustain long-term giving. Um, so it's, you know, it was, it was, it was eye-opening for me to, to see that conversation play out online. And I, and I think like it, it brings up a bunch of different things that we could dive into. So I, I definitely want to do that because I feel like there was, there's different elements of that conversation that are so important, not just now, but in general. And the first one I wanted to bring up is something you already referred to as like this disconnect between our view of fundraising, maybe from the non or the nonprofit leaders view of kind of the fundraising task versus like the programmatic work. So there's the givers and there's the good and they sit on two sides of the fence versus the donor's expectation of what they're getting involved in by giving and they're the giver and they're doing good. And so how do you reconcile that disconnect or, or how have you seen organizations navigate that? Because I think that's something we see in our own research here at Virtuous, which is causing a lot of uh, organizations to really struggle and kind of be on a hamster wheel be- because this disconnect exists. Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm going to use some language that might not be comfortable for some in our sector. Uh, it's it's not crass foul language. It's, it's corporate language. Um, but I, I think there might still be a little bit of pushback. Here, here's my thought on this. I think one of the reasons why we're at this sort of you know uh, crossroads is that many nonprofit organizations don't understand who their customer is. So 
you know, when I think about uh, a commercial organization, let, let's think about Facebook, right? Um, there are millions, maybe billions of people who use Facebook. They are not Facebook's customers. Many of them might feel like they are, but they are not. They are essentially the product. Um, and the Facebook's customers are the advertisers, right? The people who pay the bill. Um, so I think if we, if we think about the nonprofit sector um, and, and, you know, sort of trying to understand the difference between a customer and, and you know, those who we serve, I, I would argue that the nonprofit organization's customer is primarily the donor. The, mm-hmm. the people who are served by the nonprofit, they are recipients of value and service. But when you think about the, the economics of, uh, of philanthropy, you know, you, you can't discount and say the, the people that we're serving don't count. But if you want the engine to run and you want to be able to deliver programs and, you know, feed people, clothe people, um, end uh, poverty, improve the environment, provide health care, the, the, the organizations across the globe can't do that without the strength of philanthropy behind them. It's just not possible. So to, to discount the donor and not view them as a primary customer uh, in that equation, I think is a really big mistake. And I, and I believe that it leads to organizations um, sort of dismissing the desires of, of the donor and saying, well, you know, they fund the organization, but we're the experts on this cause. And so we're going to do what we know is right for the people we serve. And, and when that happens, there's a really big disconnect. And I think often it leads to, uh, to donors probably making one gift and saying, well, that was a crappy experience. I'm never going to do that again. Um, and, and that results in you know, sort of the, the acquisition hamster wheel that so many organizations are on. Uh, it, it's a, you know, it results in the pretty pathetic retention rates that we see today across the sector. Um, and I mean, if you, if you look at people like uh, Lisa Greer o- over at uh, Philanthropy 451, you know, and the, some of the commentary she has around the experience, particularly that high net worth donors have, um, I, I think that's why, why we're seeing a lot of high capacity donors back off and say, you know what, I'll put my money in a donor advised fund. Um, I'll get my tax benefit there. And occasionally I'll make gifts from that, but I am not going to deeply engage with organizations because they're not treating me the way that I'm accustomed to be treat, being treated everywhere else in my life. Yeah, and I think that difference between the experience that's expected or kind of cultivated through all of our other experiences. We talk about this in our responsive fundraising book about this idea that like personalization is everywhere and this kind of idea of how we have a connection with and confidence in the brands that we engage with and that's driven through personalization. Uh, and then the absence of that in our generosity kind of and endeavors is, is so stark. And, and I guess the question is, is not that whether there's an issue there. I almost am curious, like how organizations begin to, to kind of process this challenge internally, because some of this is like cultural. It's not even strategic. It's like, or like at a strategy level, it's like there's a cultural narrative in their organization is that we are the doing the good and someone is giving us money so we can go do the good versus what the Facebook example would say is that, no, we're actually a platform where there's users and advertisers and the advertisers give us money to connect with the users. So they're using their platform as a way to bridge advertisers and users. In the same light, nonprofits can use their platform or become a platform to connect to the givers. 
to the good. But how do you begin to navigate this? Like, let's say we agree with you and people are nodding their head. They're like, but how do I, how do I begin to tackle the hard work of transitioning my organization's posture? Yeah. Um, so it, it is hard work as is really any major change initiative. And this is um, maybe one of the biggest changes that any organization would have to go through. So I think the first place that that has to start is with executive buy-in, right? If you can't get a board and the C-suite of an organization to agree that we have to treat our donors in a, in a more uh, human way, in a, so that we can more effectively build long-term relationships with them, then there's no reason to try anything else, right? If, if, you, if you don't have that buy-in to support an initiative like this when it gets tough, um, you're never going to be successful. So I think the first step is um, articulating the rationale for why you have to do this. And I think, you know, you can do that with data that's on hand, right? So um, in just about any organization, you're going to have some donors who are closer to the organization than others, whether they're major donors and they've been, you know, managed by a, a development officer and, and that development officer has treated them well. And so therefore they're connected deeply, or maybe they've, um, you know, they've received services. Maybe it's a hospital and they've been a patient or, you know, it's a, a boys and girls clubs and their, their child has been uh, cared for at the club or something like that. Right. So those people who are already close to the organization, I would say, you know, look at their value relative to the value of everybody else on the file. Who's, you know, brought in through other channels and maybe more of a transactional supporter. And I suspect what you'll see is the people who are closer to the organization tend to have a longer retention, you know, longer lifetime giving, probably more valuable and probably less expensive to engage on an ongoing basis because of that relationship. So I think if you can make the case that, look, getting closer to our donors, being more uh, personal and more human with them, is already shown to, to bear fruit with this small group of donors. Imagine what it could look like if we could do that at scale. Um, and, and if you can't convince the board and the C-suite with an ROI conversation, I'm not sure what else will. Um, and then once you've got that agreement, assuming that they say, yes, okay, we, we buy off on this, let's do it. Um, then I think it's a matter of how do we thoughtfully construct a, a constituent journey that will allow us to engage these donors, volunteers, uh, you know, what, however else you're engaging with, with individuals uh, in a meaningful conversation over time that, uh, that, you know, exposes them to everything that we're doing, helps identify the things that are most important to them that we're doing, and then creates opportunities for us to engage deeply in those areas, eventually asking them for a gift to support something that's meaningful to them. And then also providing that that feedback loop on an ongoing basis so that the donor sees, okay, I gave you $500. You then, you know, fairly immediately told me, you thanked me, you showed me how my dollars were being used. And then you came back to me after the fact and told me the impact of how those dollars were being used. Um, I, I think, you know, constructing that kind of journey and then, you know, ideally having the framework behind the journey so that it's not... Um, it's not just a, something that humans have to be doing all the time, right? So you to do this effectively, you've really got to have some level of automation capability behind it. Um, otherwise, you're going to have to add hundreds of staff to do this at scale with, with any file of significance. Um, but I think those are the things. And, and then I would say celebrate the, the small wins, right? So, you know, this might be a multi-year process to get an organization aligned around something like this. 
but it, uh, it doesn't have to mean that you wait two or three years before you say, hey, this worked and, and we should all be glad about it, right? If in the first 90 days, you start to see an emerging trend that looks positive, stop and celebrate that and make sure the entire organization, including the board and the you know, executive director know, wow, you guys signed off on this. Our team's been working our butts off to do this. And look, just 90 days in, here's what we're seeing. These are positives. Um, and, and you know, therefore, uh, it makes a lot of sense for us to continue moving forward because we're already seeing the fruits of, of even our early activity. Yeah, and I think that that whole idea of being able to, like, first and foremost, get leadership buy-in. Obviously, if they're not, you're exactly right. If they're not sold, then you're, you know, you're in trouble. But then also applying the strategic layer like what is our strategy to actually deliver this, which you talked about journey mapping and being able to execute on that. But then it's actually like putting the systems in place over time. Like that's one thing that we've been, we've been talking a lot about here at Virtuous is how do you act, like what is a, because I don't think there's disagreement in what you should do. Like I, I really don't, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, like people are like, yes, I should treat all donors. Yes, I should do this. Yes, I should do this. Then you get into the problem of like systems and scale and you kind of address that. But I'm curious, like how, like wh- how do you take a systematic approach to even being able to build this? You talked about putting something in place and then celebrating the early wins, but I still think there's this gap between like where I am today and even getting close to that. Like, and that, you know, and that's how do we guide organizations through that process, especially the fundraising leadership? Yeah. So I think one of the, the things that we have to be really mindful of is the way that uh, most nonprofits budget, right? So, and, and the way that they manage cash. Um, with the exception of a small few uh, handful of organizations, and maybe, you know, if you, if you set aside uh, the eds and meds of the world, but if you're talking about really any other kind of organization, it's, it's highly unlikely that they have more than six to 12 months of, of cash reserves on hand. So, you know, one of the difficult pieces around that is that sometimes doing this work and setting up these systems is going to take, you know, multiple years and it's going to take a lot of investment. Probably the only place they can shift that investment from is going to be fundraising. So the, the push pull becomes, we want a better future reality but our budget is such that we can't give up this current year reality because if we, if we go, you know, if we short acquisition or if we cut our appeal budget, or if we don't do this event, this year's cash flow is going to look bad. And, you know, programmatically it may impact things, but also, you know, from a, from a fundraiser performance perspective, you know, if I'm a fundraiser and I'm, I'm, you know, graded, if you will, annually, on dollars raised or any other numbers like that, if you take away some of my budget to fund largely infrastructure improvements to, to make this possible over time, um, you know I, I'm going to fail. And most organizations aren't nimble enough to, to set up a structure that, that allows for the kind of flexibility to shift investments and, and in a corresponding manner, shift expectations of their staff as well. So I, I think before you get into like, what tools do we buy? How do we project manage this? All those sort of things. I think it really is, is a, a conversation about investment strategy. And, um, and then also like, you know, how, how, does, how do we help organizations think differently about uh, KPIs, key performance indicators, and, and things like that around 
uh, an annualized uh, fundraising approach because this might take two to three years to to really see the full fruit of a, a program uh, change like this. And in that time, money might come in uh, differently than you expect it. And cost may look a lot different because of the fact that you're investing in different infrastructure, different technology and things like that. So I, I think there's a lot of conversation that has to be had around those areas. Um, and I think it's particularly important for organizations that, you know, maybe they get a lot of their budget through um, grants and, and things of that nature where, they're, where they just don't have as much margin as they might have from, from other high margin activities like major gifts and things of that nature. Um, so I think, I think it'll be more difficult for, for organizations uh, that, that are structured more around, um, you know, corporate and foundation giving. Um, but I do think that that's the kind of conversation that has to be had before we can go forward. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting, another interesting point here is that even with leadership buy-in and like strategic clarity, there becomes this like, um, as how we describe it is a lot of nonprofits or nonprofit leaders are actually handcuffed to a system that isn't designed for the world that we live in today, whether it is budgeting or whether it is the wheel of kind of like how we measure success. And you really have to take a strong look at all of these things and say, well, why are we holding on? Like, how do we reorient from a new starting point? Because we're sometimes it's always, and we work with a lot of organizations on this here at Virtuous, where they're they're trying to just take what they were doing and shove it into our new box type thing. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, I'm so like I can't let go of this process or this approach or this report that we turn in every week or this month or whatever. And so it becomes like, how do you overcome the inertia of like the endowment to the old as you approach this process? So any, any advice specifically on that is how do you like fight against endowment of, you know, the current? Yeah. So I, I, it's funny you say this. I I had uh, a situation like this come up fairly recently where, where someone said to me, well, wait a minute, you're not doing it the way my old partner did this work. And I had to stop and say, right, because you wanted a different outcome. I could do it the way that your last partner did it. You'll probably get the same outcome you got back then, but that's what caused you to fire them. Right. So, um, you know, it's sort of that, that kind of definition of insanity, right? So if you, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get the same result and, and the same, you know, that applies and holds true here as well. I think, you know, uh, three or four years ago, I led a major change initiative uh, for a, a fundraising agency on the West Coast, and it was um, it was a really big change, and it was painful. Right, um, one of the things that that we articulated, and this really comes from uh, John Cotter, who's uh, uh, written a number of books on change management and and sort of how to do it well, and and the thing that's really important in uh, scaling a big change like this is to make sure that there's alignment across the organization that the platform is burning, right? What that means is if everyone in the organization, or at least everyone who has decision-making and implementation authority, um, if they don't all agree that what you're doing today is, um, is so significantly broken or suboptimal that you have to change, then what's going to happen is you're going to have more and more people who sit out the change. And and when that happens, um, you know, one of two things happens, either the change stalls or you force it forward. And at some point after the fact, it fails because people just say, well, I I wasn't on board to start with, so I'm not going to do it differently now. Right. So I I think the uh, first and foremost has to be sort of that, that framing 
uh, philosophy and agreement across the organization that, you know, yes, we all believe that this is the right thing to do. And we believe that it's bad enough that we have to do it. Like there's not a going back point. Right. And if, if you have that as your starting point, then when it gets tough, I think you can step back and say, wait a minute, we all agreed the platform is burning down. We have to move forward. Like we have to get something different because going back is not acceptable. Um, and, and I think if you have that kind of alignment, then it makes it makes it easier to get over um, the the hurdles that otherwise come in a big change process like that. Now, there's also sort of the the structural pieces, right? So, um, you know, in some organizations, like I said, if if you're funded primarily through government grants and fee for service and things like that, you simply won't have the margin to make big changes like this because um, th- those contracts and those grants stipulate that, that you're, you know, you're not going to be able to, to capture as much margin out of the income that passes through the organization as an organization that's raising money uh, primarily through major gifts or even direct response, right? You don't have the flexibility. So in a situation like that, I would say, you know, you might have to take a, a, an even longer time horizon view of this. And in the first couple of years, maybe, maybe the approach is we've got to raise quick cash in other ways that doesn't have strings attached so that we can then use that money to fund this change. Now, I say that and I say it like it's easy. It's not. Um, And one of the biggest challenges we have is that with staff turnover being what it is in our industry, you know, if if you say I've got a five-year time horizon on this, we're going to start raising money today. By year two, I might have a completely different staff in place. I might have a completely different CEO in, in place. And will that priority be carried through? The answer is I don't know. Um, but I think those are the kind of things that we have to be careful about. Indeed. And you bring up so many points that we could dive into, like in a variety of different ways, but I'll kind of, <laughs> because there, there's, I think like there's, there's almost so many things going against change, especially within kind of the, the nonprofit structures we have that makes it really, really difficult to be able to even think about like how we make such a, you know, transfer, because we're not talking about a change. We're talking about like a transformation, of an organization. And I think it's quite hard to do that well, as you addressed, like when funding shortages are there, margins are short, staffing is turning over. And and then amongst all of this, like right now, we're in the midst of a, you know, global health and economic like crisis, you know, basically. And there's this overall shared sense of, you know, uncertainty that is like rampant right now. And so I, I feel like it's easy to feel stuck as a leader. And I wonder if that's why people just opt out because it's just really hard to be able to do this well. So we've, we've kind of painted a negative picture. So I'm curious, like where, where the bright spots are, like where is the bright spots of opportunities or organizations that we can look towards that are doing this well? Where would you point people that are, are looking for kind of an example or some, some, some guidance on this. Yeah, it is a hard one. And I do think you're right. I think that, um, you know, as the world becomes more complicated and as the stresses of leading an organization that is dependent primarily on, on philanthropy, uh, at a time when there's a lot of, uh, uncertainty in the markets and a lot of volatility in the markets, which we know drives, uh, to some degree, um, giving, uh, you know, it, it can be really stressful and it can cause people to say, you know what, I know I want something different, but my current reality is really easy to just live in, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to think about, you know, who's really committed to doing things differently. And, you know, I think we're, I'm grateful to work with some of those folks. So um, you and I have a, a shared client uh, in Mel Trotter Ministries up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, they're a new client of yours, and, and I've been working with them for a while now. But, uh, you know, they, uh, one of the things I love about them is that they are really deeply committed to doing the best every day. And it's, it's part of their DNA. Like, you know, if, if, uh, if we walk into a meeting and we simply say, okay, this is what we've done before, so we're going to do it again, you know, there's a really good chance that most organizations would say, okay, that makes sense. And, and, you know, their leadership is constantly asking the question, well, okay, but what if we did it better? Or what if we did it differently? Could we get a different result? Um, and, but what's more important, I think, is not, they're not just asking the question, but they're leaning in hard when it comes to, you know, actually making change and really aggressively pushing forward to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to treat uh, our donors better. We're going to engage the community better. Uh, and it, it, you know, flows over into their service model as well. The, the, the way that they treat uh, the people in their shelters and the people that they um, work with who are experiencing homelessness is far better in my opinion than most organizations that are uh, similar to them. But it's, it's all because of the boldness of the leaders that are there. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the common thing that we will find in organizations that are doing this well is that that element of, of bold thinking and bold action from leaders. And I don't just mean like the CEO, right? I think there are, there are examples of people um, at many different levels across all sorts of different organizations. They might be CEOs and executive directors. They might be board members. They might be, you know, junior communications uh, person or, you know, somebody who's, you know, a year or two out of school and just started working at an organization because they're passionate about the cause, but they have a voice and, and they're willing to use it and, and, and really to, to point out and advocate for things that need to change. So I, you know, I, I think there, there are probably a, a, you know, dozens of organizations that also fit that bill because I, I, you know, while I think it's tough for a lot, it's not for everybody. Um, but I do think that it ha- that it is requires, you know, that that sort of boldness of thinking and action and a willingness to say, I'm going to take a risk, right? Um, and I think that also is a cultural piece that's important. So I was having another conversation recently uh, when we were talking about the issue of, of risk. And, you know, one of the things that I said was there are a lot of people and organizations that say, yeah, we, we are, we want people to take risks. We, we want to, to do this differently. Um, and, and, and so therefore, you know, be bold, take risks, but then when someone on their team does take a risk and it fails, uh, that person is, is punished. Right. And, uh, the, the conversation I was having that the other person said, well, you know, I know of this one organization that anytime someone on their team tries something and fails, they send them, they have a cake and, and they celebrate the fact that someone tried something bold, someone tried something different and it failed and they learned from it. So, you know, I, I think I'm not suggesting that everybody has to have a cake, although, you know, who doesn't like cake? Um, but I, I think to the extent that we can celebrate bold action, that's, you know, whether it's successful or it fails, simply for the fact that we tried something and we made the effort to change, even if we didn't get it right, I think that's really important. And it enables, like going back to the beginning of our conversation, enables you to actually serve donors better, right? Like at the end of the day, like the what we're talking about is not this transformational effort for just change's sake. It's really so that we have the opportunity 
to show up and serve those that you know are supporting the causes that we're invested in. And we always talk about this way where you're like you're you're connecting supporters or stakeholders like to the story or the impact of the mission. And that's why it's almost worth the change because if the work you're doing is worth it, the shifts and changes you have to make to be able to accomplish that in today's world is almost not an optional thing. It's a requirement because the cost of inaction is so big. You know, we look at numbers like you already mentioned um, some of the the metrics that were shared recently where only 50% of Americans even trust NGOs yeah. or the fact that, you know, 18 to 25% of people um, have opted out of giving to charities in the last decade or so. So we have a decrease of people even contributing to the generosity ecosystem. And you mentioned the the burning of the platforms, but I feel like the other thing that Jonah Berger mentions um, in his research that I just released called Catalysts about how you overcome endowment is actually showcasing the cost to inaction. And and I kind of want I kind of want to circle back to that because like we're not just talking about changing because you have like you have to be able to do this to continue to do the mission and the important work that you're doing because the environment is demanding that and showcasing that through their dollars. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. So, you know, right now I would say customer experience is, is simply table stakes for an organization, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not like no one can walk into a room and say, we give our donors a great experience and expect that that puts them, you know, like, like that there's something phenomenal in that, right? It's sort of the, yeah, duh, you should. Um, and one of the things so we we just um, sponsored a research project. It's not even out. It's not even public yet. Um, but we we worked with uh, Melissa S. Brown and Associates and, and the folks at Gray Matter and uh, Chamberlain Dunn, and we, we looked at how Americans um, are thinking and feeling about giving, and and essentially, you know, what are they doing to you know to help and, and give uh, across the country, and. One of the things that we saw is that, uh, you know, the average donor has decreased from uh, from giving just a decade ago to to I think six point five to seven charities to now giving to to about four point eight. So we, we've seen a pretty considerable contraction in the number of charities that people support, and I I think that goes you know in line with everything else you said a minute ago, and it, and it shows us that um, you know in part the experience is bad uh, across the board, and, and also. Donors are being more selective, just like they're selective with their discretionary dollars in where they uh, shop and patronize from a commercial perspective. You know, if I go to a restaurant and it takes them half an hour to seat me and then no one greets me at the table for 15 minutes and then they get my meal wrong uh, when they bring it out to the table, um, you know, I'm not likely to, to go back there. I'm not likely to give them a positive review and I'm likely to tell anybody who asks me and maybe some that don't. Uh, that I had a poor experience there. I think it's naive of us in our sector to think that donors don't do the same thing with the charities they support. You know, if you, um, if I call your organization or if I go to your website because I want to talk to you about something and I have to search for half an hour and still can't find a phone number or an email address for a live human being, uh, that's a bad experience, right? That's like me waiting for 30 minutes before I can get a a table. If you don't greet me, uh, and, and don't thank me for coming uh, at a restaurant. That, that's kind of like, you know, after I give my first gift, if you don't, you don't thank me for that, or you don't you know, do it in a timely manner, it's, it's kind of similar experience. And if, you know, something as simple as you got my name wrong on an appeal, uh, similarly to getting my meal wrong when you bring it out to me, um, that's yet another thing that says to the donor, wow, I don't think these guys have their act together. I, 
I, I, I'm not going to do this again, right? Uh, and in conversations, particularly with high net worth donors that I've had, uh, to a person, they've said, when I have experiences like that, I have no incentive to give again. And I'm going to make sure that all of my friends in my network, so likely other high net worth individuals, know that I had a bad experience there because I don't want them to waste their time or money on that organization. So I, I think if we're not fixing those things, we're in for a really rude awakening. And I, I think we're starting to see it now, but it's going to get worse if it doesn't get resolved. Yeah, and you bring up a really interesting thing that I think is compounded due to our connected world is that just how we can tap into virality to grow something, there's almost this like negative virality that happens that if one, you mentioned, like if you have a bad experience, it's not just, oh, we lost Andrew. It's like you lost Andrew and maybe like four and a half of his other friends <laughs> that would have given to you or would have supported your business. Like there's a, a, a like a negative virality that happens as donors have bad experiences or if we ignore their preferences or any of these other things that I think, you know, we almost, the impact was maybe less before and, or maybe it wasn't as obvious as it is in our connected economy, like where this negative virality really comes into play and has huge implications, not only for your charity, but other charities. Because I think like the, the, the stat about 50% of Americans or uh, only 50% of Americans trust nonprofits is not due to all of them. It's due to like the ones they had bad experiences are, but it's putting a negative, you know, mark on the generosity ecosystem as a whole, which is something that as people that are hopefully trying to make our world be a better place um, should consider <laughs> as part of the, uh, how we implement our strategies. For sure. I mean, if we think about it uh, again, with a commercial perspective, not every lawyer and not every car salesperson are slimy right? And they don't all cheat people. But there's a percentage of them that have really ruined the reputation of both of those uh, professions because of their poor behavior. And so I, th I think the same is true here, right? You know, like you said, one or two organizations that, um, that give a bad experience, that treat people poorly, that, that aren't trustworthy, and all of a sudden you have half of the country saying, yeah, we just don't think we trust you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's it, you're right the, the scale and the speed with which trust can be lost today, I think are are significantly greater than ten or twenty years ago. Oh, hundred percent. And we've kind of defined it as this: is that like attention and trust are the most valuable currencies, and they may have always been, but in today, in the connected economy, like they are the most valuable currency that you have, and it has to be stewarded in that way. And I think it brings us to the last point. Obviously, Andrew, we could talk about a variety of things, and we have already where we've zoomed really far out and said, you know, there's some big macro changes that might be multi-year initiatives for your organization to really make a transformational effort. And then we talked about the elements of kind of what is required, leadership buy-in, a detailed strategy, a systematic approach to adoption, you know, like this cultural shift within your organization, boldness. But I think the thing that I want to come back down to, because there's always this balance in our sector and probably in all sectors of balancing kind of the like big vision or long-term vision versus the short-term plan. And I wanted to get your advice really on what are some like two to three must-haves, like must-solve for in 2020 if organizations are really going to thrive in 2021 and beyond. And I think you already mentioned one, you know, which we started this conversation where you're like, hey, if someone gives to you, thank your donors. Like, it's just simple as that, like, thank your donors. But what are some other ones that organizations must adopt? It's not wait till the whole transformation is done, but it's like, 
you have to have these things in place if you want to succeed and grow in 21 or 2021 and beyond. Yeah, so you're right. I think first and foremost, you know, the stewardship piece. And we saw after the the financial collapse in 2008-2009, organizations that doubled down on stewardship and invested more in that area, thank you calls, you know, thank you emails, all sorts of different engagement like that. They actually were able to come out of that financial crisis faster and healthier than those that didn't. So that one I agree, like done and gone. If you're not doing that, you're, you're, you're you know, failing at a fundamental level. Um, beyond that, I think now is the time to be investing as much as possible in individual relationships, particularly with mid-level donors, with monthly sustainers who give, you know, who've given particularly over multiple years, uh, and with major and legacy gift donors. Because you know, if we think about it right now, um, somewhere around 40 to 45% of all philanthropic dollars in the U.S. are given by 1% of donors. So, um, you know, if, if we're not focusing a lot of attention, a lot of energy, and, and even expense dollars on managing those relationships well, we're in for a rude awakening. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the point that you made early on in this conversation around uh, personalization, you know, organizations that are still sending dear friend emails and dear friend letters uh, are at risk. You know, and, and I use those as the examples, but it certainly goes uh, deeper than that. You know, the, the extent to which you can access data that allows you to personalize an experience for a donor um, at whatever level and in whatever channel you can um, is going to be really valuable. So that the more that you can understand your data well and understand what data you need to capture in order to be able to have those personalized experiences for donors and then creating those different journeys uh, based on whatever it is you know about those donors, which might take upfront investment, it might take some additional uh, time to create those experiences, and it may take some money. But doing those things well will allow you to start to deliver on that value proposition that donors expect, which is if I if the entire rest of my life is personalized to me, why can't philanthropy be that way? Um, you know, I, I think. Right now, those are the biggest things that I would say. And given that we're still in this, you know, COVID crisis situation, I would also add if organizations don't have a strategic crisis fundraising plan, um, you know, we're a little bit late to the to the game on that today for organizations. Um, but to be prepared for the next crisis, I, I would say it's it's probably also time to to plan around crisis fundraising. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Andrew, really grateful for your insights and expertise. Thanks. Yeah, man. Excited to be here. Thanks for the conversation. I thought it was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash 
podcast. That's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. You can download a content kit that includes the Responsive Fundraising Blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the Responsive Fundraising Playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is gonna be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. 